Remember the 90s, when MTV still played music videos, when people still bought physical copies of albums, and when legendary musicians like Kurt Cobain and Dimebag Daryl still walked the earth? Well, now you can once again relive that decade every week on KBGA because your favorite 90s radio show, Sounds Like Teen Spirit, is back and better than ever. It's still the best show on KBGA to hear artists like Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Sublime, Megadeth, Primus, and more. Again, that's Sounds Like Teen Spirit. Now on Sundays from 8 to 10 p.m., only on 89.9 KBGA Missoula.
That was Susie and the Banshees kicking off this program with Halloween off their 1981 album Juju. Welcome to the Halloween 2022 edition of Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. I'm your incorporeal host, Screamin' Ian. Typically for my Halloween shows, I come up with a playlist of spooky and supernatural-themed songs by the 90s artists I routinely play on the program. This year, however, it's Halloween in the sense that Sounds Like Teen Spirit itself is wearing a costume, that of an 80s-themed show. Yep, you heard me correctly. It's 80s night, y'all! For the record, this was that other high-concept theme that I alluded to potentially wanting to use for my 200th episode extravaganza last year, which instead took on a Weird Al theme. I suggested I would save this theme for my Radiothon 2022 show, but since Radiothon didn't happen yet again this year, I eventually decided to repurpose it for Halloween. So why did I want to do an 80s show so badly? I think the better question is, why wouldn't I want to do an 80s show? I'm not sure it's even possible to tell the story of the 90s without acknowledging the 1980s. The two decades are directly adjacent to one another, and many defining musical trends of the 90s were either a continuation or a deliberate repudiation of trends from the 80s. Furthermore, I've included 80s songs in almost every episode of Sounds Like Teen Spirit 2.0 to date, so I've been dipping my toes in those waters frequently over the past several years. As for why I wanted to do an 80s episode for Halloween, well, for starters, I was already on the hook for a Halloween show this year after promising on air last year that I'd do one for 2022. And as I was trying to scrounge up some new Halloween-themed songs for that show while simultaneously wondering when I'd have my next good opportunity to use the 80s theme, I had the revelation that Halloween doesn't always have to mean scary. I considered approaching this year's Halloween episode from the whole costume party angle instead, and from there it was a really easy decision for me to kill two birds with one stone and do an 80s Halloween show. Now, despite what that first song I played may have led you to expect, this isn't an entire episode of Halloween-themed 80s songs. For the most part, I just went with a broad 80s theme, but that being said, don't be surprised if other familiar Spooky Time favorites crop up amid this playlist. So what can you expect to hear over the next couple hours? Well, I tried to come up with a list of songs that highlight the uniqueness of the 80s without feeling too divorced from the show's typical 90s fare. I made a point to dabble extensively in 80s endemic music genres, so like new wave, hardcore punk, goth rock, hair metal, and such. Although I have included a bit of the regular Sounds Like Teen Spirit alumni, for instance Soundgarden and Faith No More, I generally took the opportunity to play a bunch of artists that don't normally fit with this program. Artists like Black Flag, Oingo Boingo, The Smiths, Husker Du, Talking Heads, Bruce Springsteen, Dio, NXS, The Dead Kennedys, and Twisted Sister. Oh, and yes, there are going to be album reviews in this episode, and even those adhere to the 80s theme. This week, I'm reviewing and playing a song apiece from the new Pixies album, Doggerel, released on September 30th, the new Queensryche album, Digital Noise Alliance, released on October 7th, the new Cults album, Under the Midnight Sun, also released on the 7th, and the new Red Hot Chili Peppers album, Return of the Dream Canteen, released on the 14th. I'll start with the Pixies. The Pixies have now put out as many albums during their second wave of mutilation as they did during their initial run more than two decades prior with the release of 2022's Doggerel. 
At this point, the band is locked into an impeccably consistent rhythm in regards to their musical output, just like they had before, except more deliberate and calculated. Originally, they released four albums at an annual rate from 1988 through 1991 before disbanding in 93, and ever since they reformed and subsequently found a new bassist in Paz L'Enchantine, the Pixies have been reliably cranking out new albums every few years, with their latest three albums arriving in September of 2022, 2019, and 2016, and two of those albums actually sharing an anniversary. It seems the now middle-aged band have finally attained a comfortable and healthy equilibrium and are built to last, unlike the original incarnation which folded after a scant seven years of hyperactivity. However, after listening to the newly released Doggerel, I'm concerned they might be starting to spin their wheels a bit. Look, a lot has already been made of the extremely palpable disconnect in sound between classic Pixies and modern Pixies, and although these newer Pixies albums certainly aren't for every fan, I've come to enjoy and appreciate them for what they do. That being said, Doggerel is the first of them not to be an improvement over the last one, and made the mildest first impression on me out of the four released to date. The album does not continue with the enticingly dark vibe of its 2019 predecessor, Beneath the Airy, in fact it sounds oddly happy in places, and it actually has much more in common sonically with 2016's Head Carrier, and to a marginally lesser extent, 2014's Indie Cindy. Those were both fine albums, particularly Head Carrier, and so is Doggerel, but it never really reaches the same peaks as its 2016 anniversary twin. That's not to say it doesn't have its share of relative highlights, such as opening track No Matter Day, which shifts gears curiously about halfway through, Thunder and Lightning, an intriguing country sorta hybrid, Get Simulated, which feels uncannily like a Dandy Warhols song, especially when its synthy outro kicks in, lead single There's a Moon On, arguably the catchiest song on the album, and its closing title track, which fades out on a hypnotic vocal trade-off between Black Francis and Paz L'Enchantine. Speaking of Paz, although she doesn't sing lead on any tracks here, like she had gotten to for one apiece on her first two outings with the Pixies, her backing vocals are highly omnipresent on the bulk of Doggerel's songs. As a replacement for the nigh-irreplaceable Kim Deal, she's really come to carve out her own niche in the band's DNA, one that is distinct from, yet favorably comparable to, that of her predecessor. Okay, I realize I might be starting to make the new album sound more impressive than I initially suggested it was. The truth is, Doggerel ain't half bad. Overall, I would say it's a cut or two above Indie Cindy, definitely not as good as Beneath the Airy, and perhaps also not as good as Head Carrier, though time could very well end up being kinder to it in the long run. Head Carrier's had six years for its tracks to familiarize themselves with me, and I've grown quite fond of the album, but though I don't yet love any of those aforementioned doggerel highlights like I do my Head Carrier favorites, I can tell that much of the album's tracks are going to be growers too. Ultimately, if you didn't like any of the previous three Pixies albums, there's no good reason for you to expect to like this one, and if conversely you are on board with those albums, then you'll be able to get on board with Doggerel too. I just worry it's going to go down as nothing more than that 2022 Pixies album when all said and done. Alright, next up is the album's somewhat Halloween-themed lead single, There's a Moon On. Enjoy! <laughs> Day seems about the same 
portion of KBGA is brought to you by Imagination Brewing Company. By supporting over 1,700 community events and its educational center, Imagination brews handcrafted beer to make a positive impact on Missoula and beyond. For more information about what's on tap, weekly live music offerings, or to reserve the center, call 406-926-1251 or visit imaginationbrewing.com.
T's and Q's, Buster, and remember who you're dealing with. KBGA Missoula, The Cabbage.
cherry brown My heart smiles and never frowns Soon I will be president Cotton power will soon go away I will be Sierra one day I will command all of you You kids are meditating in school You kids are meditating in school California, Alvarado
Motley Crue with Take Me to the Top off their 1981 debut, Too Fast for Love. Motley Crue's latest reunion seems to be hopelessly and relentlessly cursed. The reunion was first announced in late 2019, less than four years after the band played the final gig of their two-year farewell tour, and it was set to commence with a 2020 stadium tour also featuring Def Leppard, Poison, and Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, imaginatively titled The Stadium Tour. Well, of course, COVID came along and made short work of that. And sure, it did the same for practically every artist who planned a tour that year. But in the case of Motley Crue, it almost seemed like divine karmic retribution for going back on their cessation of touring agreement. The stadium tour was postponed to 2021, then again to 2022, which is when it finally happened. And just days before the first show, Tommy Lee cracked four of his ribs and was advised by a doctor not to participate in the tour. Lee, having been looking forward to those gigs for over two years, defied his doctor's orders and attempted to play anyway, and initially he was only able to get through a handful of songs each night before the pain coerced him to swap places with his sub, Tommy Clufetos. To his credit, Lee kept on powering through his injury, and for most of the tour he was capable of playing full sets. However, although the stadium tour wrapped up last month, it is set to pick up again down the line, and in the meantime, the setbacks just keep coming. The latest one occurred just last week, on October 26th, when guitarist Mick Mars, the only original member aside from Nicky Six to remain in the lineup continuously, announced that he was retiring from touring. Mars, who at 71 years old is the oldest member of Motley Crue by almost a decade, has suffered from ankylosing spondylitis, or AS, since he was at least 17. AS is a chronic form of arthritis that affects the spine and pelvis, and over the years it has caused Mick Mars no shortage of misery, including routine sharp pains in his hips and scoliosis in his back. He actually had to have hip replacement surgery in 2004 in order to continue performing, but now, roughly 18 years later, that surgery has evidently taken him as far as he could go. According to his official statement to Variety, Mars will still remain a member of Motley Crue, but he, quote, can no longer handle the rigors of the road. So I guess that means he'll still be involved in the recording of new Motley Crue music, but whenever it comes time to hit the road again, he's out of there? But hang on. Just last month, Vince Neil suggested in an interview that the band was decidedly done recording albums and would function strictly as a touring band from now on. So where does that leave Mick Mars? Seems to me like he just became a ghost within the organization. As for Motley Crue's plans going forward, well, naturally, it's nothing but tours. The band will be touring Latin America and Europe next year with just Def Leppard before bringing the full stadium tour roster together again in 2024 for another U.S. leg of the stadium tour, and an Asian tour is reportedly also in the cards. The crew named Mars' touring replacement within a day of Mars announcing his retirement on the morning of the 27th. After rumors swirled for weeks surrounding his potential involvement with the band, Rob Zombie guitarist John Five was confirmed to be their new touring guitarist. Anyway, before Motley Crue, I played California Uber Alice by the Dead Kennedys off their 1980 album Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables, The One Thing by NXS off their 1982 album Shabu Shuba, Makes No Sense at All by Husker Du off their 1985 album Flip Your Wig, Stand Up and Shout by Dio off his 1983 album Holy Diver, and Home Again by Oingo Boingo off their 1987 album Boingo. Once again, you're listening to Sounds Like Teen Spirit 80s Edition on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. 
To like this show on Facebook, go to facebook.com slash SLTS2. And to hear this and other episodes of the program after the broadcast, go to kbga.org slash teen-spirit. All right, next I'm going to review and play a song from the new Cult album, Under the Midnight Sun. This past decade or so has seen the cult veering in a somewhat different direction with their music. Originally starting out as more of a goth rock band before settling into hard rock and glam for much of their career, the cult signaled yet another style change with the release of their 2012 album, Choice of Weapon. This album was notably darker and more melodic than its predecessors, and it demonstrated a shift in priorities for the band's two creative forces and sole mainstays amid an ever-changing lineup, frontman Ian Astbury and guitarist Billy Duffy. It seemed like they became less interested in crafting hooky, anthemic rock songs than in cultivating a mood or atmosphere and just trying to sustain it for as long as they reasonably can, though that didn't stop them from accidentally pulling off the former anyway on such tracks as Honey from a Knife, The Wolf, and For the Animals. Sure, this newly presented version of the cult was decidedly less fun than its forebears, but it still retained enough of the band's signature spirit and DNA to feel like an organic evolution, and it mostly succeeded in finding a weirdly enticing equilibrium between past and present cult. However, the band continued even harder down that path with their 2016 album Hidden City, punching up the atmospherics some more and cutting back further on distinguished songcraft, and the end result wasn't quite as agreeably solid or memorable as last time. Now, more than six and a half years following the release of Hidden City, the cult have essentially gone all in on dark and melodic soundscaping with their latest album Under the Midnight Sun, and alas, this time around it really does feel like a bridge too far. The album has little to no appeal for casual or entry-level fans of the cult. There are no infectious hooks, big arena-filling riffs, or electrified choruses as heard in abundance on past cult hits like She Sells Sanctuary, Love Removal Machine, Lil Devil, and Firewoman. The closest the album has to a classic cult rocker is its lead single Give Me Mercy, and even that one might be too melancholic to find the same audience. Generally speaking, Under the Midnight Sun finds Asbury and Duffy feeding off each other's gloomy vibes and maintaining a steady, darkness-tinged mid-tempo groove throughout the album. It's certainly interesting to listen to in places, but it can also get rather repetitive, and the songs here do kind of tend to bleed together. Even the album's highlights don't entirely stick the landing. For instance, Vendetta X is propped up by a nifty bassline and drumbeat combo, but it also doesn't make efficient use of its time and feels pretty slight as the album's shortest song. Impermanence kicks off with a strong enough foundation, but it sort of just peters out at the moment where it ought to be ramping up. And Knife Through Butterfly Heart, the album's longest song at just over six minutes, is a particularly effective showcase for Billy Duffy's talents, and unfortunately is also weighed down by an excess of fat and gristle. Ultimately, the most egregious thing about Under the Midnight Sun is its overall length. With just eight tracks totaling roughly 35 minutes, it is easily the cult's shortest album to date. After a near seven-year wait, that level of brevity just isn't going to cut the mustard with me, even if the album were more well-rounded and engaging in its limited runtime. And yet, I hesitate to call it a misfire. It's certainly not a bad way to spend 35 minutes, and the album does hold some appeal for longtime fans of the cult who have grown familiar with and appreciative of Asbury and Duffy's many idiosyncrasies, as well as anyone who prefers an atmospheric listening experience. 
I get the sense that Under the Midnight Sun is very much meant to be a grower, but most listeners probably won't have the patience to give it the time it needs. And all the same, I reckon a return to form is in order for the next cult album. Alright, next up is aforementioned relative highlight impermanence. Enjoy!
listen, we don't need any fancy super duper promo. We don't need any of that. See here with KVGA, we're just a student run college radio station and we play music. It's pretty simple. That's it.
Cool J is hard as hell. Battle anybody, I don't care. You tell. I excel. They all fail. Gonna cocktail double
Yo, what's up? This is Afro Man. Hey, this is Bass Nectar. We're the Dodging Mountain Man. The Hood Internet. Hey, this is Michael Franti. This is Dude F.O. Infected Mushroom. And we are from the band. Up. You're listening to KBGA, Missoula. Thank you. 
That was The Cure with A Forest, off their 1980 album, 17 Seconds. I figured this week would be a good time for me to bring y'all up to speed on The Cure's long-overdue 14th studio album. The band's most recent album to date is still 2008's 413 Dream, which, having just turned 14 a few days ago, is pretty damn old. Naturally, a follow-up has been in the works for many years, but it wasn't until 2019 that we started to get encouraging news of its progress. That was the year The Cure were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and the day after the induction ceremony in March, frontman Robert Smith gave an exclusive interview to Rolling Stone. In it, he revealed that the band had recently gone into the studio where Queen did Bohemian Rhapsody and recorded 19 songs, which he described as all being in the 10-plus minute range. He went on to say that the band aimed to finalize the album by summer, handle mixing over the summer, and perhaps release it sometime in October. He later provided an update in a July 2019 interview with NME, saying that the band would be going back to the studio to re-record three or four songs the following month, but that he was still, quote, intent on it being a 2019 release and would be extremely bitter if it isn't. Well, I guess Robert Smith must have been a very bitter man at the end of that year because the album failed to materialize in 2019, and 2020, and 2021. The next real update we got came in a June 2021 interview Smith gave to Apple Music One, where he disclosed that The Cure have actually finished two new albums, saying, one of them's very, very doom and gloom, and the other one isn't. He added that the only thing he had left to do was decide who was going to mix them. We wouldn't hear another word about the new albums until March 2022, when Smith told NME that the first one would be titled Songs of a Lost World, and this is supposedly the Doom and Gloom album he was referencing earlier. In May, Smith talked to NME once more and suggested that Songs of a Lost World would be out in time for The Cure's European tour beginning in October. Of course, that tour kicked off earlier this month, and the album still hasn't come out, but several songs from the album have nonetheless materialized in the form of footage of The Cure playing them on the European tour. So far, the band have premiered four songs from the upcoming album, and they are more or less consistent with all that Smith has been saying about them over the years, and thus suggest a radical departure from 413 Dream, which had a catchier, more upbeat sound, and only one track longer than five minutes. Only one of the four songs premiered is actually in the 10-minute range, though, but the rest are all at least six. The first one revealed, simply titled Alone, is a rather lush Cure song with an extensive intro, reminding me of certain tracks from the band's 1992 album Wish, as well as 2000's Bloodflowers. The next one, which premiered during the same show in Latvia, is Endsong, and that one's basically a dark 10-minute soundscape evoking the disintegration era, with sparse input from Smith, whose first vocals don't kick in until more than six minutes into the song. The next one after that, which made its debut in Stockholm, is And Nothing Is Forever, a relatively sparse piano ballad sounding somewhat reminiscent of A Letter to Elise from 1992's Wish. Finally, the latest one, titled I Can Never Say Goodbye, premiered less than two weeks ago in Poland. That one's also piano-driven, but with more of a full band sound, and murky guitars that are perpetually at odds with the piano's cleaner melody. At this point, it's anyone's guess as to when this new Cure album will ever be unleashed. Its progress is probably halted while the band is still on tour, which won't be wrapping up until mid-December. 
And although it seems the album's been like 99% finished for some time and could be formally announced any day now, it may ultimately come down to whenever Robert Smith finally feels it's perfect enough to see release, which could very well be never at the rate things have been going. All the same, I'll be sure to let you know when Songs of a Lost World does get a concrete date and subsequently review and play from it on the show, provided I actually live to see the day. Alright, before The Cure, I played The Bars by Black Flag off their 1984 album Slip It In. Rock the Bells by LL Cool J off his 1985 album Radio. Cross-Eyed and Painless by The Talking Heads off their 1980 album Remain in Light. Evil by Merciful Fate off their 1987 compilation The Beginning. And Every Day is Halloween by Ministry off their 1984 single of the same name. You're still listening to Sounds Like Teen Spirit 80s Edition on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. To like this show on Facebook, go to facebook.com SLTS2. And to hear this and other episodes of the program after the broadcast, go to kbga.org teen spirit. Alright, next I'm going to review and play a song from the new Queensryche album, Digital Noise Alliance. It feels a tad unfair of us to continue regarding Todd Latour as Queensryche's new singer. Sure, in the relative sense of the term, that's true, as he's only fronted Queensryche for the past 10 years while his predecessor Jeff Tate was around for 30. But at the same time, he's been the frontman of Queensryche for a full decade and has now recorded four albums with the band, which is the total number of albums that Jane's Addiction have released since their mid-80s inception. Over the course of all those years and albums, Latour has proven himself to be a real heavyweight replacement singer and very much in tune with the essence of Queensryche. The band made him a full partner right from the get-go, and it is under his banner that they've been diligently working to get back in touch with their 80s to early 90s heyday after it became apparent that Tate didn't share the same interests. With each new album they recorded with Latour, Queensryche have reclaimed more and more of themselves, and their latest, 2022's Digital Noise Alliance, represents what is undoubtedly their most ambitious effort yet to do so. It's no coincidence that the acronym for the new Queensryche album's title is DNA, or that its cover art incorporates the double helix structure into the band's familiar Tri-Rike logo. Founding guitarist Michael Wilton has described it as an album that kind of stretches and encompasses the whole music genre of Queensryche and just a good all-around Queensryche album. In keeping with his word, Digital Noise Alliance really does feel like an attempt to distill the full Queensryche experience into as concise a package as possible, which turns out to be just over 60 minutes. Basically every type of song ever associated with Queensryche is represented in this set, Opener and lead single In Extremis is an exhilarating new wave of British heavy metal style track and a definite highlight of both the album and the Latour era thus far. Forest is an ethereal Pink Floydian ballad that aims to be Latour's very own silent lucidity. Out of the Black confidently hails from the school of classic metal. Chapters is a straight-ahead rocker more akin to latter-day Jeff Tate material. Lost in Sorrow is highly melodic and mid-tempo, and so on and so forth. But the album's most concentrated effort and biggest accomplishment is the return of proggy Queensryche in all its former glory. And sure, the 2015 album Conditioned Human was also sometimes proggy, but this one harkens back more to the Queensryche that recorded the classic 1988 concept album Operation Mindcrime and its equally ambitious 1990 follow-up Empire. In other words, peak Queensryche. 
The crown jewel of Digital Noise Alliance is 7.5 minute prog monster Tormentum. The song starts out as a kick-ass Iron Maiden-esque number before cooling down a bit for a hypnotic interludal passage. That leads into a heavy instrumental breakdown, and then finally, Todd Latour's soaring vocals return to bring things full circle. The second longest song on the album, Behind the Walls at six and a quarter minutes, also feels unmistakably proggy, thanks in no small part to keyboards that sound like they could have come out of a Yes album and Latour's impassioned belting of the central refrain, seemingly intended to reverberate through the song's titular walls. Prog elements are also highly detectable in the song's Nocturnal Light and Hold On, and the song transitions are among the best I've heard from any album in a while. DNA's musicianship is tight and intricate despite a couple new lineup shakeups since the last outing, and Latour really comes into his own on this album. At this point, he clearly no longer feels obligated to fill the Jeff Tate-sized hole in Queensryche as precisely as possible. There are more moments here than ever before where he very decidedly doesn't sound like Tate. I mean, in general he still does, like, a lot, but only to the degree that it comes off without conscious effort. Now he's apparently bringing more of his personal influences into the mix, channeling Bruce Dickinson on In Extremis and Tormentum, for instance, and Dream Theater's James Labrie on Forest. It seems to me that Todd Latour is just trying to do Todd Latour the best he can, and I'd say that's a good change. And yet, even though I seem to have nothing but positives to say about Digital Noise Alliance, I don't unequivocally love the album, and for once, words fail me in articulating exactly why. All the pieces are most certainly there. Maybe I was just expecting more immediate gratification from it based on its three pre-release singles. That'd be my best guess anyway. Ultimately, Digital Noise Alliance is a very robust Queensryche album and arguably the best of the Latour era so far, but I have a feeling they still have a better one in them yet. Alright, this next song is relatively short and straightforward, but I really didn't have room for Tormentum this week, so instead here's Realms. Enjoy!
This is Silver Sprocket, host of Something Else, live every Wednesday from 8 to 10 p.m. right here on KBGA Missoula 89.9 FM. I feature avant-garde, electroacoustic, free jazz, and more creative music every week. You'll get to hear advanced new releases straight from the artists and record labels before anybody else and extensive interviews with the artists themselves. How about you give something else a try? Live every Wednesday from 8 to 10 p.m. on KBGA Missoula, 89.9 FM, and streaming at kbga.org. Crashes into 
Just Can't Get Enough, off their 1981 debut, Speak and Spell. A handful of episodes ago, while reporting on the death of founding Depeche Mode keyboardist Andy Fletcher, I expressed uncertainty and skepticism over the possibility that the band would continue, surmising it would at least not be anytime soon, if ever. Turns out I may have been a tad premature in my assessment. The two surviving members, Dave Gahan and Martin Gore, had remained tight-lipped about Depeche Mode's future over the months since Fletcher's May 26th passing, other than cryptically sharing a photo of themselves in the studio suggesting that Depeche Mode would indeed have a future. However, earlier this month, the duo held a press conference revealing that that future was in fact very imminent. Next spring, the band will embark on a world tour, marking their first live shows in roughly five years. The tour will commence with a short U.S. and Canadian leg, which kicks off on March 23rd in Sacramento and concludes with a show at New York's Madison Square Garden on April 14th. After that, the band will tour through Europe from mid-May to mid-August, starting out in Amsterdam on May 16th and wrapping up in Oslo on August 11th. What's more, a new studio album from Depeche Mode is on the way. The album has been titled Memento Mori, and although it does not yet have a release date or lead single, the band is aiming to put it out sometime ahead of next year's world tour. That would make it their first album in roughly six years following March 2017's Spirit. We started work on this project early in the pandemic, and its themes were directly inspired by that time, said Gore. After Fletch's passing, we decided to continue, as we're sure this is what he would have wanted, and that has really given the project an extra level of meaning. Gahan added, Flesh would have loved this album. We're really looking forward to sharing it with you soon, and we can't wait to present it to you live at the shows next year. Naturally, you can expect me to continue keeping you abreast of Depeche Mode's future plans right here on Sounds Like Teen Spirit, and I'll be sure to review and play from Memento Mori whenever that album ends up getting released. 
Anyway, before Depeche Mode, I played Full On Kevin's Mom by Soundgarden off their 1989 album Louder Than Love. There is a Light That Never Goes Out by The Smiths off their 1986 album The Queen Is Dead. Hate Breeders by The Misfits off their 1982 album Walk Among Us. You Can't Stop Rock and Roll by Twisted Sister off their 1983 album of the same name. The Morning After by Faith No More off their 1989 album The Real Thing. And Working on the Highway by Bruce Springsteen off his 1984 album Born in the USA. And that about wraps up a revolting episode of Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. I've been your haunted host, Screamin' Ian. I realize a number of you are likely chomping at the bit to inundate me with all the great 80s artists I neglected over the last couple hours, and I want to prematurely diffuse that by saying, I totally hear you, man. Just as was the case with last month's metal edition, there was no hope of me ever adequately and comprehensively covering the full scope of the 80s over just a two-hour window, and I had to begrudgingly cut out a ton of good stuff from the preliminary drafts of this playlist. Rest assured, the 80s is definitely a theme I want to revisit, and I might even make a regular thing of it like I do with the covers episodes. In the meantime, I'm closing out this episode by reviewing and playing a song from the new Red Hot Chili Peppers album, Return of the Dream Canteen. Well, folks, I never imagined that the Red Hot Chili Peppers would ever go bigger than their smash hit 2006 double album, Stadium Arcadium, but they have decidedly done just that in 2022. Beloved guitarist John Frusciante's homecoming has yielded not one, but two new double albums from the Chili's this year. Although neither album is as long as Stadium Arcadium individually, together the two albums amount to 34 total tracks and over 2 hours and 28 minutes of music, which is 6 tracks and about 25 minutes more than Stadium Arcadium. Basically, the recording sessions for these new Chili Pepper albums ran long after the band's reunion tour with Frusciante was initially sidelined by COVID, and time that would have been spent on the road was instead spent in the studio. The band ended up recording and finishing nearly 50 new songs, and they originally wanted to release 40 of them spread between 7 discs, but after their label naturally balked at the idea, they compromised by taking 34 of those songs and divvying them up between just two big albums, with 17 tracks to an album. The first of those albums, Unlimited Love, was released in April, and it represents a more straightforward and quintessential Chili Peppers set. That album largely plays like an immediate successor to Stadium Arcadium, which just so happened to be the band's last album with John Frusciante. Its newly released companion album, Return of the Dream Canteen, was previously billed by Frusciante as having, quote, a relaxed energy that's distinct from the intensity of its predecessor. Relaxed, as it turns out, is merely scratching the surface. In a nutshell, if Unlimited Love was a respectable evening out with old friends, then Return of the Dream Canteen is its after-midnight counterpart. It's funkier, sleazier, weirder, and a bit more profane, but at the same time, more tender, soothing, and heartfelt. There are certainly songs on each album that sound like they were meant for the other, but for the most part, that is the general distinction between the two. Unlimited Love was a mainly guitar-driven album, one that took care to highlight the newly reintegrated Frusciante's signature contributions to the band. Return of the Dream Canteen, on the other hand, seems to be driven more by Flea's bass, which greatly influences the album's overall late-night lounge kind of vibe. 
For Shante's guitar work on this one is less prominent and in some stretches non-existent, though the odd moments where he really gets to cut loose, like on the blisteringly epic guitar solo that comprises the entire second half of Eddie Van Halen tribute Eddie, rival absolutely anything presented on the Limited Love. In place of all that missing guitar is an unprecedented volume of keyboards and synthesizers, all of which were actually recorded by Frusciante, who had been experimenting with a more electronic sound in his decade away from the Chili Peppers. In many respects, Return of the Dream Canteen reminds me of the band's 2016 album The Getaway, which is honestly one of my least favorite Chili Pepper albums, but make no mistake, this album is a lot more fun to listen to than The Getaway. I believe the main reason this one works better is definitely Frusciante, who has very much proven himself to be the Chili's missing piece over the course of these last couple albums. Frusciante meshes well with the other three members and is clearly on the same wavelength. He has a way of stimulating the band's creative impulses as well as the versatility to adapt to any and all roles required of him, which are qualities that others in his position have lacked. I have a feeling that if the Chili Peppers wrote and recorded these same songs with Josh Klinghoffer instead, something would seem off about them, but with Frusciante firmly in the mix, they feel right as rain. Return of the Dream Canteen gives us a different side of John Frusciante that's been largely unexplored within the scope of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and normally I might feel somewhat disappointed over the relative lack of his signature guitar tones on the album, but considering we had just gotten an abundance of those on Unlimited Love roughly six months prior, I'm considerably more receptive to something more atypical of both him and the band. That might have been the only real benefit to releasing the two albums in rapid succession, though. Having so much new Chili's music to digest over such a short time span means that a number of songs that can emphatically be considered good on their own terms will inevitably get lost in the shuffle for most people, and Return of the Dream Canteen undoubtedly could have been a stronger, more impactful album if it were trimmed down a bit and released further down the road from Unlimited Love. However, as it is, the album is pretty uniform in quality all across the board. Its best songs don't quite reach the same heights as those from Unlimited Love, but its weakest ones are hardly a step down from its best. My personal highlights include Reach Out, Fake As F***, Handful, Shoot Me A Smile, Roulette, Copperbelly, Bag Of Grins, and I better cut myself off here before I list the entire album because, as I said, pretty much all these songs are on the same level to me. Ultimately, if Unlimited Love is like the Jupiter disc to Stadium Arcadium, then Return of the Dream Canteen is the Mars disc. In other words, it might not initially make as strong of an impression as that first disc and is rightfully sequenced second, but it discreetly houses a lot of the more interesting songs and will likely reveal itself in time to be the superior offering. Alright, the closing track I've selected for this episode wasn't one of my favorites upon first listen of the album, but after a couple additional spins, I've found it to be among the album's greatest treasures. This is the penultimate track, Carry Me Home, and it appears to be a tribute of sorts to Jimi Hendrix. You'll see what I mean when you hear the guitar work. Have a happily hair-raising Halloween, Missoula! Please leave me my pain 
ups and downs Away we go to get another hit The hit, the blood that she's about to spit Yeah. Uh-huh. 